Well, welcome once again. Uh, my name is Josh, and this is Resonate. Um, we are starting a brand new series. Actually, last week was the first week we were in it. We did a little intro deal. Uh, but today, we're full-blown in our series called Heretics. Now, before you walk out of the room, uh, because you think I'm going to be ultra-Orthodox and call, start calling out modern-day heresy, uh, or uh, if you think we're going to fully like, accept heresy, uh, both of those are not the case. What we're doing here uh, is we want to talk about how, as a church, as a tradition, I should do like church capital C, big C, uh, we have a hefty, robust, beautiful history of getting it wrong a lot of the time. Um, there are a lot of people, especially uh, if you are in the Catholic tradition or grew up in the Catholic tradition, uh, the, the best part about the Catholic tradition is their ability uh, to kind of turn things around and say like, oh, I think we got this wrong. Uh, a lot of the saints, not the majority, but a ton of saints uh, were martyred and they were martyred for heresy. So give it about 100 years. At first, they're like, that person is a heretic, burn them at the stake, kill them, all that good stuff. And then about 100 years later, they go, oops, actually, they're a saint. <laughs> so there's a huge shift that happens uh, from like heretic, the world is flat, uh, it's not round, how could you ever think that, to like, oh, wait, we've now figured out that the world is indeed round, and we missed the mark. So we're going to now repent, we're going to turn around, and we're going to say, okay, we messed up. Uh, and I think... In modern-day Christianity, we're not doing this practice enough. Uh, right now, in 2018, I mean, so I come from the Southern Baptist tradition. Uh, it was only 1993 or 1994 that they, so the reason they're Southern Baptists and Baptists, I don't know if you guys know this, they split over a little thing called slavery uh, way back in the Civil War. Uh, and the Southern Baptists remained Southern Baptists and the Northern Baptists remained just Baptists. Both would just call themselves like Baptists. We're just Baptists, right? Uh, but the Southern Baptist Convention thrived. The other Baptist Convention thrived. Uh, and they've remained separate to today. And it, it took till 1993 <coughs> or four, I can't remember the exact year, uh, for them to say, I'm sorry, hey, actually, we really got it wrong on this slavery thing, right? And that's the most recent example of saying, oh, we got it wrong there, but there's all sorts of ways that we've used this Christian faith to divide people, to create fear in people, to control people. Just in our history in the United States, this religion that we have, this faith, this Jesus tradition was used to both enforce slavery and then after that enforce Jim Crow laws and then after that segregation. It, it's been used to keep certain people groups out, certain people groups oppressed, and the biggest thing that we can do as followers of Jesus is, is take a hard look around and say, ooh, I think we missed the mark. I wanna say I'm sorry and I apologize. It's this idea of reconciliation. That's gonna be our whole theme this morning is reconciling what happens. The idea of reconciliation is recognizing something that we did not see before, and coming to a new conclusion together. And we don't see this a lot in our country right now. <laughs> I write for the Huffington Post. Uh, I've written for the Washington Post. I've written for Relevant Magazine. I've written for a bunch of these publications, mostly to do with church. Uh, and I, I was writing a lot. It was actually the main thing that I was doing up until 2016. And then something really weird in 2016 happened, the election. And, and with it, a polarizing view of what goes online and what we read became venomous. So I've literally written one thing since 2016 for both of these publications because there's not a space for reconciliation. We aren't giving room for both parties to come in and reconcile with each other. See, the idea of reconciliation at its very core is not that you walk in and you dominate a conversation and you win the argument. The actual real definition of reconciliation is that we both come in and we both lose a little bit. And in that way, we both win a little bit. 
We need more space for reconciliation in our culture right now. Because right now, it is just it's becoming more and more and more and more divided. And especially when it comes to church, it's very difficult to be a church that wants to be a melting pot for both of those sides and live in that tension. But if we look at the way of Jesus and we look at this grand tradition that we have 2,000 years of these people following the way of Christ, we can see that the true call is not to be to the left or to the right, but it's actually to be in spaces where both of those combine and we can learn from each other. Now, that sounds super lovely. Uh, but you'd be surprised how many people are labeled heretics that actually want to sit in that center. Actually, one of the main reasons we wanted to get uh, this title is because, uh, do you guys remember if you were ever on Twitter like a couple years ago, people would make lists uh, and you would get, you'd find yourself like so-and-so put you on this list because they would follow different lists. Uh, and for a while, I would be putting people's categories like writer, author, blogger. Uh, but then after 2016, I found myself on a lot of lists that said heretic, <laughs> right? So all of a sudden, I was like, well, that's an interesting word. Wow, okay, well, I can see how you can see that. Um, so what we want to do is kind of redefine what the heck that word means and the fact that like a lot of people that are labeled this word, we, label, we, we later look back and go like, ouch, we really did that, huh? For that person, we really did that. Did you know that, that so Van Gogh is probably one of the most celebrated artists of all time, period. Uh, he's world renowned. Um, I, I grew up a little bit in Amsterdam and so I uh, got a chance to see a lot of his art as a kid. Uh, he made profound statements, just humongous, beautiful paintings uh, that redefined Impressionism and redefined kind of the world of art for a little while. Uh, but the thing about Van Gogh is during his lifetime, he actually only sold one officially documented painting. That's it. So if we look around, right, I don't want to be the type of person that misses Van Gogh. I don't want to be the type of person that looks back 100 years and then goes, oh, yeah, you know what? This Van Gogh guy's got something going on. I would rather be the type of person that is open enough to look at something beautiful and declare it beautiful and say, wow, this is it right now, right here. That's what the spiritual tradition is. So in this series, I'm going to give us a little roadmap for where we'll, we'll, the stuff we'll talk about. Um, I want to do a little church history, which is going to be just, everyone's just lit up on that one. Uh, I want to do a little church history uh, sprinkled into this thing. And mainly, I'm fascinated. So my dad uh, wrote a book. It's actually The Idiot's Guide to Evangelical Spiritual Christianity. That's that, he literally wrote The Idiot's Guide to Evangelical Christianity. So I grew up getting all of these tidbits to American evangelical Christianity and the history that's in it, and it's always fascinated with it. So I want to go through kind of like some of the people that were labeled heretical in that, that sort of sphere that we've later turned around and gone like, oh. Uh, for instance, did you know that at the time of Martin Luther King's like living self, while he was still out there like fighting for the oppressed and everything, it, in, as far as church people go, only roughly around 50% actually approved of what he was doing. And that's pretty shocking to us now, but back then, we didn't know. So I, I want to take a look at some of these people and some of this, in this grand tradition and everything. But to do that, we're going to juxtapose it with prophets, with old school prophets from the Old Testament. So we're going to talk about Jonah, uh, and then we're actually going to talk about what that means for evangelical politics. That's going to be fun. Uh, and then we're going to talk about um, this guy. Some of you in the room are going to know this, and if you do, like, shouts to you. A lot of you are just going to be like, who the heck is that? Uh, but we're actually going to take a look at the history of the American church through its very first and only, I would argue, rock star. It's a guy named Larry Norman, and we're going to follow Larry Norman's uh, story all the way through to help tell the story of the Jesus movement and what was going on here in Los Angeles in the 1970s and 60s and how this whole Jesus thing sprang to life and how cool that was and how we need to kind of take that back a little bit. So we're going to talk about all of these different stuff. But today, 
the main theme is going to be reconciliation because here's the deal on both sides, right? And we've, we've felt the venom now for close to two years. I think that the core of the issue here is that everyone and anyone, it's a human trait, we have the innate ability to rationalize anything, especially the things that we're passionate. We can convince ourselves of anything. Rationalization is a huge issue when it comes to this stuff. Because, because of our implicit bias, because of the stuff we don't understand, we believe things so fiercely that we put walls up so that no one can ever penetrate that and maybe shift our thinking and maybe change our mind. Maybe shift. You gotta understand that like, for the earliest Christians in the book of Acts, the entire book of Acts, is God literally shaking up what they thought religion and God and faith was supposed to be. All of a sudden, people that were never allowed in are starting to trickle in. The kingdom's getting bigger for some reason. So it's this constant sort of like, we can't rationalize this anymore because God, like death didn't get the last word and we have this resurrected Christ walking around. I mean, now we can't rationalize the same way we used to. So we need to reconcile with the text. We need to figure out how Jesus points back to the old stuff and how he's bringing it into the new. That's the grand story. But unfortunately, that's very, very difficult when you've thought one way your entire life for someone to come in and say, no, that's not all right, uh, it, it hardly works. I'll give you an example. Um, my, most of my family is from the Deep South. Uh, and when I say Deep South, I mean, I don't, like, very deep. I haven't met most of my relatives. Uh, there's a lot of, we call it woodshed going on. But anyway, there's a whole bunch of relatives I've never met. Uh, my grandfather, his name was Virgil E. Lee Cobia. And if you're guessing what that E. Lee stands for, it was a Confederate general. Uh, Virgil E. Lee Cobia, uh, and he was a musician uh, and a truck driver. Uh, and both at different times. Um, and if you asked my grandfather, hey, uh, Grandpa, what kind of music do you play? He would say, uh, well, both kinds, country and Western, right? <laughs> country and Western. This was my grandfather. And my grandfather was just a, I, I barely, so he, he passed away when I was about in second grade, but I have vivid memories of riding around in his golf cart with him uh, and him telling me these tales of being on the road. He used to play with Willie Nelson. He had like this huge kind of vast knowledge of country western music, but he also had the quirkiest and weirdest habits. And here's one that he passed down to me that I thought was real until I was about like five or six and someone finally said, that's ridiculous. Uh, he rationalized, he would eat fried chicken almost every day. Almost every day of his life, it would be Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, and then Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A on Sunday obviously isn't open, so that's when he would go to KFC. But he would eat fried chicken almost every day of his life. Uh, I, it, by the way, he made it to like 80 and incredible, but good genes. Um, but the way that he would rationalize it, and he truly believed this, I mean, he really, really believed this, was he would get a Diet Coke with the fried chicken. And he explained to me, he said, Josh, when you eat the fried chicken and you drink the Diet Coke, the acid in the Diet Coke burns away the fats in the chicken, so it's just chicken, right? And I thought that, what a beautiful plan, right? But he had literally rationalized himself into the view that like, you could take a soft drink and erase all the calories of a fried chicken. He's living in a perfect utopia in his mind. Ignorance is bliss. But it's actually, it's a psychological thing that's called self-deceit. This is the ability that we lie to ourselves to be able to lie to other people. What's really the truth is hard to get at. And so what self-deceit does is it, it creeps in and it says, if I can just like, sell myself on the lie, then my ability to lie to others is going to feel more like truth. And when it comes across, it's going to feel like truth. But the real funkiness about this is we have absolutely no control over it. Stuff can get in our minds and plant itself there, and then we can begin deceiving ourselves without even knowing it. And I think a huge part of faith and a walk with Christ is pulling out to that 3,000-foot view 
and saying, hold on, what's going on here? Where's God at work? Where's God really at work? Where are you at work? And where is God at work? And are you headed in the same direction? It can even go so far as our identity. We can convince ourselves that we are someone that we totally are not. I forget who says this, but it's an amazing quote. Uh, they said, if the person that you think you are met the person that, you, that others think you are, met the person that you really are, no one would recognize each other. And it's true. The story we tell about ourselves is not often the truth. The story we tell about ourselves can be pumped up with all sorts of ego, or it can be brought down by all sorts of depression and awful deceit. Uh, this Easter, uh, we had a huge crowd in here. It was a, it was a wonderful uh, experience for me. And, and we actually had a, we had a family member that was coming that I knew uh, wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But this was going to be their first time uh, in a church. And so I was, I was pumped because I had written what I considered was this awesome sermon and delivered it. And, and I felt great. I was on like cloud nine. And I walk out in the lobby and I'm about to greet this, this family member who also is very intimate. My wife comes from a, a tradition of a very beautiful people. So her whole family is like when they're just, they're all gorgeous in their own right. So when I hang out with them, I'm like, I gotta buy a new shirt before I come in here. Um, but this person, uh, I'm very, I'm very intimidated by them, and I, I just, I was so excited to like walk out in victory and go like, yes, I nailed that in there. And she goes, Josh, and I'm like, yes, here it comes, the accolade, like you're amazing. And she goes, you're just a normal guy. <laughs> that was her, that was her big compliment to me. It was like, oh, I, was, I can't believe pastors are normal. She's like, you're just a normal guy. And with that, all the wind went out of my sails, and I went, I guess that's what I'm good for, <laughs> right? But I convinced myself of a narrative, and she had convinced herself of a narrative, and then there's all of these little narratives and stuff that we've convinced ourselves of, and what really is the truth? What's the truth? Actually, uh, Stephen and Tess told me this uh, one time. In the circus, which is a, just a generally terrible place, uh, when, you were, when you were training an elephant, uh, from, a, from a baby onward, uh, what they would do is they would put a stake in the ground that the baby elephant couldn't lift out, right? Uh, but they would, as the elephant grew, the fear of pulling the stake out of the ground would keep the elephant grounded to the stake. So it had every ability as a giant something ton animal to just yank that stake out. But because of the fear that was instilled in it from a small, small baby elephant, it didn't believe that it could actually accomplish that. I'll give you another example of that. Our dog, our puppy Baloo, um, is a natural escape artist, so I don't know what his plan is, but it's always escape. Uh, and we trained him, we would always pick him up uh, when we would walk down the stairs of our apartment to go down, and that actually put in his brain that it's impossible to go downstairs. So anytime he would come to a stair, he would like stop and wait and like look up, and I'd be like, you can do it, buddy, until he got a little bit older when he realized, oh, I can actually run downstairs, and now anytime that door's open, he's like, shoo! <laughs> See, this is the tradition of the prophets. This is the tradition of stuff that got people in trouble because they would look at that stake or they would look at that stairs and they would say, you can walk down the stairs or you can pull that stake out of the ground. The job of the prophet when God would instill this in these people was always to say, show them more freedom. Show them who I really am. Don't let them believe the lie, the religious lie, all the stuff that I've built up, but actually show them who I am. Prophets point to freedom. Prophets actually show us who we really are. There's a perfect example of that uh, in the story of King David. So if you're new to the whole Bible thing, King David uh, is sort of the greatest king that we have in the Hebrew tradition. He's, he's this, this just 
this, this crazy polarizing figure in the Hebrew scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, and that lasts all the way through the story of the New Testament. This, this guy, for some reason, shaped the minds and culture of this people to such a degree, and he did that mostly because he was just truly trying to follow God. Uh, but what's interesting, and we keep it in there, which I think is beautiful, we're showing our work, we're being messy, uh, is that David also had a really, really gruesome period in his life. Uh, and it all centered around uh, this uh, woman named Bathsheba. So one day David is out and he sees that Bathsheba is bathing on a roof, because that's where we bathe, right? Everyone does that. Uh, he sees that she's bathing on a roof and he, he calls to uh, his servants and says, go get me uh, Bathsheba. Now this is where it gets very hairy. Uh, the text says he lies with her, but there is no sort of like, like version of consent in there. So I'll let you do the math, but it's not pretty. David kind of forces himself upon Bathsheba. And then after that, I think matters even more hairy, uh, Bathsheba gets pregnant. It comes to David and says, I'm, I'm with child. And David goes, okay, well, we gotta, we got to rectify this situation so no one finds out. So what he does is he brings over uh, the husband of Bathsheba, and he, he gets him a lot of wine, and then basically says, like, now go back home to your wife. And uh, he does. That doesn't work out. Uh, so he has to figure out an even more drastic uh, solution to the problem. And what he figures out uh, is one of the most devious and self-deceit and, and just crazy ideas. He decides he's going to send him to the front lines, and he gave his commanders instructions that when the, when the opposing uh, army attacks, you're going to pull back from this man and just let him do the fighting so there's no chance that he could survive. And so he, he, David's plan works, and the husband falls. And David thinks, OK, I've got this under control, until this prophet named Nathan uh, comes along. And this is where we're going to pick up the story uh, in the scripture here. Uh, this is called Nathan Rebukes. David. It said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Uh, when he came to him, he said, there were two men. So this is uh, Nathan talking to David. And he's, pay attention here. He leads with a story. And he says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. So a little cultural context here. Uh, this isn't weird that Nathan would just show up and start telling a story. And in fact, as far as David knows, this isn't actually like a made-up story. This could be very real. See, the job of a king was actually the job of judge. You were like the Supreme Court. So you were like the highest order of judgment. So this was normal for a prophet to come to the king and say, like, hey, here's what's going on. I saw this injustice in the land. What is your judgment on it? And I will carry that out. So David just assumes he's listening to a story about someone else. Um, so they had a large number of sheep and cattle. Uh, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and he grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained uh, from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the, the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man. He's like infuriated. How could anyone do this to anyone? As surely as the Lord lives, and this is his judgment upon what he thinks is a real person. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did, it such, because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And then just a couple verses later, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's perception about who he was, about what he had accomplished, about what he thought he had gotten away with. In fact, what he probably rationalized is completely okay. 
putting yourself a couple degrees separation, saying like if the other army wipes him out, I'm not actually really responsible. Like he's, he's a soldier, he's doing his job, he's gonna get taken out. There's a rationalization there that like I didn't do anything wrong and I can totally cover this up. And what Nathan and God comes to do is go right to the heart of the matter and say, no, you are that man. You've done something this egregious four times over. And what's remarkable is David doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, no, 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 you don't understand. He's a soldier. He's doing his job. He simply says, oh, you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. It cuts right to him. Now pay attention to how Nathan actually convinces David that he is someone else than what he thought he was. He does not come in and barrag him with a bunch of facts. He does not come in and say, hey, God told me about Bathsheba. I know about the whole army thing. I know dot, 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 dot. Because if you do that, all David's going to do is get defensive, deny everything. You get nothing accomplished. But here's the crazy part. A story somehow breaks through and changes things. It changes things. To illustrate this point, we must talk about sandwiches. So do we have um, that, that Wikipedia article? So there's a guy uh, named the Earl of Sandwich. This is where the sandwich was invented. This is a Wikipedia article all about a story. The print is so small, I can't even read it to you. But imagine if I said, for the next three minutes, I'm just going to read this slide to you verbatim, word for word. All of a sudden, eyes go, no. <laughs> right? The bullet points don't affect us. In fact, it would just wash over us. However, if I said this, let me tell you a story. In 1792, I mean, by John Montague, who was the fourth uh, Earl of Sandwich. And based upon what he's going to later invent, I'm just really happy it's not called an Earl. Uh, he's the, he was the, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. Uh, and he also had a slight problem, and that was that he was a belligerent gambler. He could not stop gambling. He loved to play cards way into the night. In fact, he was known not to bathe or participate in any kind of hygienic uh, operations because he just wanted to be at the table playing cards gambling. And it got so bad that one day he hadn't had anything to eat but he couldn't put the cards down. He needed one hand for the cards and one hand to eat something. So in a move of sheer desperation that later turns to brilliance, he turns around to one of his servants and he says, please, can I have a piece of meat between two slices of bread? It is brought to him. Everyone at the card table is amazed. The sandwich is born. <laughs> Boom. Now what happened there? That might be, this is true, that might be the only thing you remember from the sermon. <laughs> right? And there's a reason for that. When I said, let me tell you a story, something in us opens up. Something different than if I were just to read facts on a page to you. A story is somehow able to get inside of us and change us. And this is actually uh, scientifically true. If someone gives you bullet points and processing, uh, basically that goes to your, the, the same part of your brain that processes numbers and translates. So what happens is your brain goes into decode mode, and you're not really actually soaking anything in. You're just translating it and feeding it back out. However, when you're listening to a story, and Uri Hansen from uh, Princeton University uh, figured this stuff out. It's called neural coupling. We have that slide. Uh, when you're telling a story, the same sensual, uh, the, the, the sensory cortex lights up in the same way the, with the listener and the teller of the story. Your brains are syncing up on a weird level. Suddenly, the same sensory stuff, the taste, the feels, the sandwich in the hand, all of that is being experienced by both the, the narrator and the listener. And for a brief moment, we're synced up in a different way. And Jesus understood this better than anyone. Almost every point he tried to make 
It was never a direct answer. It was always a story. And why was that? Because he was trying to get something inside of you that could get past the self-deception, but could actually work through you and change you. Stories are actually our most powerful ally if we ever hope to change people's minds. This is why debates never work, right? No one ever wins coming out of those. I love that, like, whenever you watch a political debate, both sides will be like, yeah, we kicked them, right? But neither side won. Neither side got anything accomplished. It's not debate, it's conversation. It's telling you your story. When someone asks you what you do for a living, uh, if I reply pastor instantly, like, shoop, don't want to talk to you anymore. But uh, if I reply, well, I, I, let me tell you a story. I started a church, and here's, here's what we did. And, and then people are interested, right? If you're telling people what you do, they ask you at a party or something, you say, well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a businessman. That's your title, right? That's not your story. That's not going to have anybody interested in you. To get, gain people's interest, to actually be able to work in their lives, we have to learn to tell good stories. And here's the deal. It's really effective on the other end of this. Imagine if you're able, if you've mastered the ability to craft a narrative or tell a story, and then you combine fear with that. All of a sudden, you have a really potent chemical that can get in people's brains, and you can actually create massive movements based on a story of fear. So how do you beat that? Because it's so easy to get people afraid. It's so easy to scare people into a crowd. Fear always builds a crowd. But it's not lasting. The only way we can get past that is if we can learn to tell a more beautiful story. So we can learn to actually tell a better story. One that judo flips the fear. The same amount of power that the fear can do. We can do that with love and hope. It just takes a little bit more work. And actually, it takes harnessing the power of all of that fear and all that rage and all that awfulness and just going, like, I'm going to use the same amount of power that you're using that fear thing, and I'm going to use it for good and for hope and for love. And that's possible. Martin Luther King Jr. was at the very beginning stage of his career as a pastor. Uh, he had just gone to uh, seminary and come back, and his mind had been opened. Uh, and his, he came from a long tradition of preachers and pastors, and all of them were preaching the same way. Uh, but when he went to seminary, his mind was uh, exploded. You ever want a crisis of faith? Go to seminary. It's a perfect place to totally wipe out. <laughs> and he came back, and his mind was open, uh, and he could not read this Bible anymore. And he's sitting at his kitchen table, and he opens up the Bible, and he's reading through. Uh, and there's so much beautiful stuff in it, and he can see that, but he can't get past this one thing. First Peter. First Peter says this. We have that slide. There we go. Uh, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. This verse, he thought to himself, this verse has been used my entire life to keep my people down, to keep me down. And I can't get past it. It's right there. It's clear as day within the text. How do I get past this? And he said he was about to throw his Bible through the wall when a voice came in and said, Martin, keep reading. Martin, keep reading. And he kept reading, and just a few lines lower, he ran into this. It says, uh, when they hurled their insults at him, he was talking about Christ, uh, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to those uh, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd 
and overseer of your souls. And in this moment, he thought, this first verse is no more a, a compliment of slavery or a way to enforce it. God doesn't want anyone to be enslaved so much as he did not want to have to nail his son to a cross. And with that, Martin Luther King Jr. takes a tradition that was used as a slaveholder religion and flips it on his head. A Bible that was used to enforce his people to be lesser than, now he's using for liberation and freedom. And I dare you, look for a single speech by Martin Luther King Jr. that does not use scripture. He started using this thing that was so destructive, so harmful for him in his past, and he starts using it as something that's going to bring redemption, freedom, and hope. He judo-flipped that fear and takes it into something more beautiful than had ever been realized before, and it worked. And it worked. Problem is, and, and a big sort of apology we need to make as a Christian tradition is oftentimes we read things wrong. It's so easy, and it's so damaging. You know, another, another thing that I truly believed as a child was I believed that uh, Harold was a name for God because heart, the Harold angels sing, and then also, like, <laughs> Her- Hallowed be his name. I thought that was Harold. Uh, so I literally had, I, up until, like, age seven, that someone was like, what are you talking about? It's, it's Her- Hallowed. Hallowed. Um, so not Harold, right? Even though that works with, like, Jesus H. Christ. It makes total sense. Anyway, um, you can read it wrong. You can miss it. The early church had to do this again. Like they, were, they had to look at the scripture and then go, oh my gosh, like, look at all this stuff that we were reading. And now it all points to this Jesus figure. And now we have to rethink everything. Now we have to figure out what all of this means. We have to reconcile our beliefs with this new thing that's come to the world. And we have to compromise. We have to learn from what God is currently doing to transform all of that hurt and that pain into something really, really beautiful. Just look at what we're spending our energy on. Did you know that the US and Russia combined have 1,800 nuclear warheads uh, between the two of them? Oh, actually, separately, each has about that number. Uh, Those are the ones we just maintain. Overall, there's about 15,000 nuclear bombs in the world that have not been decommissioned yet, but might not work. We don't know. But 15,000, that's staggering. Let's just go on the low end, 1,800 that we have. Do you know how many nuclear bombs it would take to completely wipe out all of human existence? A generous answer is 10. A closer answer is one. If one goes off in the air in such a way it could pollute and radiate, like the radioactivity could go all over our planet, it could wipe us all out very slowly, but it could do it. So being generous and using the 10 number, that means we have figured out and we have placed our energy on a way to destroy our planet 180 times over. And yet we have not thought of one single way to save it. One single way to save it. How is that possible? We're bent towards fear. We're bent towards destruction. But the whole point of the cross, the whole point of what Jesus does is he says, no, 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 no. Fear no longer gets the last word. What's the, what's the biggest fear you could ever possibly have? It's death. And he says, no more. I've conquered that. There's nothing to be afraid of. We should be using that same energy to be doing wonderful things in the world. And Jesus illustrates this perfectly uh, when he uh, is talking to Peter. Peter asks him, uh, this is the next scripture here. Peter asked him, uh, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, sometimes this is translated as 70 times seven, 
which is what we like to see because it's a bigger number, right? So we go, ooh, yeah, let's, let's go with the bigger number instead of 77 times. But we miss a beautiful point when we do that. This is a remez, it's a hint. I love these things, so you'll get a remez every week if I can. Uh, but a remez is this idea, this uh, rabbinical idea that they would drop something in that would then release the story in the people's brains over here. Why did he say 77 times? There's only one other time in scripture that 77 is, uh, is, is noted, and they would have known this, these, these early Jewish followers, and it was a little known figure named Lamech. Now Lamech is not a good dude. He has a couple lines in the Bible, and they're very, very violent. Here's, here are those lines in the Bible. Lamech says, uh, by the way, he's a, a descendant of Cain, the first murderer, and it looks like he's got that murderous bent as well. He says, uh, Adam, and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. So this is his first words to his wives. Guys, pay attention. Uh, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So basically what he's saying is seven is a, is a number that represents completeness. So it's not just that this is complete, it's that I'm going to go double complete on you. So anyone that messed with Lamech was going to get hurt 77 times over. They're going to get way more than they deserve. So Jesus takes a line about a murderer and says, with the same amount of fervor that this murderer wants to kill people 77 times over, that's the amount of fervor that I want you to take for forgiveness. That's the kind of attitude I want you to have towards healing the world. Not just complete, but with that same rage in there. I'm a young pastor, I mean, for now. <laughs> uh, but I often get uh, questions like, just on the state of the church in the world, the capital C church, and people will, will ask kind of like, well, is it still relevant? And you know, why, why be a pastor is like the, the, mostly the question that I'll get. Um, and then another question is why, as like an institution, is the church shrinking? And so I, I've really thrown myself headlong, dedicated my life to trying to understand the shift that's happening in our culture right now away from church community, away from Christianity, away from religion in general. Uh, and my most, my, my most brilliant hermeneutic exegetic answer is, I think it just really sucks right now. <laughs> I, I think that what's going on in the church is harming the church. We're still using fear. We're still trying to gather people with that method. And the cultural identity right now is not interested in fear. It's not real. There's so much more we can be doing. And when you look at an institution like the church, where our friends, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, our, uh, our, our, our women in church and leadership, things that people keep people out based upon who they are or what they believe in or, or who they love, all of this stuff is keeping people from growing. It's keeping the whole church from growing as a whole. If any other institution put these rules in place, they'd be sued, right? And yet the church persists on putting walls up, walls up, walls up, walls up, walls up. I don't have the answers for any of those things, but I'm just saying, maybe it's time to give these things a closer look. Maybe it's time to embrace a larger story, a more beautiful thing. And I truly believe at the heart of all of this, uh, if you want to really understand what it is to follow Christ, you have to step outside the walls of a church. And you have to engage uh, with people that don't talk like you, that don't act like you, and serve them, really serve them. This is what happened to me. I was, uh, I was raised in a very, very Christian environment, and I've always, always loved Jesus. This is the truth of it. As cheesy as it sounds, Jesus is my best friend, and I have always loved Jesus. 
I've always loved God. I've always loved Christianity. I've loved it. And I loved it as a teenager. Uh, I thought I was all in. And then I got invited to go on a missions trip to Mexico. Uh, and I hopped on uh, one of the cars, and so we caravaned down, and we went into Mexico. And for the first time in my life, like I'd lived in Europe and stuff, but it, like just surrounded by all sorts of uh, privilege and money and all that kind of stuff, this was the first time I'd ever crossed over into anything remotely third world or remotely kind of like destitute. And the craziest shift, if you've ever done it, uh, is you go from San Diego, which is this green, beautiful, awesome-like city, and right across the border, you're like, whoa, we are in a different country. And you'd look up at the hillsides and you'd see the shambled houses that are really nailed together by, by old billboards or tarps or things like that. And for the first time in my life, my eyes were open. This is what it's all about. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, all of that kind of stuff, it's because, it's because they really are the key to our blessing. All of a sudden, as I served this family, as I got to know the little kids, you play soccer with the kids, when I would come back and I would worship at night, we'd always do like a little worship service, my worship felt like it really meant something. Like it really meant something. Like I wasn't just going through the motions, I wasn't just saying the words, I wasn't just being a part of a club, I was actually living out what God had said. And these people, even though we were down there building a house for them, they actually judo flipped that on me and I was the one receiving true blessing. I was the one actually figuring out what it meant to follow Jesus because I reconciled, finally, not just the Jesus of religion or the Jesus of America or the Jesus of anything or the Jesus of prosperity, you name it. I found the Jesus that had been on the cross and had died and had risen again and had come to proclaim that now there's no more of this, no more fear, no more pain. We're going to come we're going to be a tool for reconciliation in the world. That's where you truly get it. So if you're afraid to go do this, sign up for it. Just, just, just go. It's like two days. And I guarantee you, your faith is going to be impacted. And you're going to come back a little more alive. Uh, let me pray for us. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you for um, allowing us to talk about these bigger questions. Lord, as we dip our toes into the bigger questions, I pray for maturity, I pray for spiritual guidance, I pray for um, listening. Uh, that we wouldn't go our own way, but we would go the way that you are moving. Uh, we would do that prayerfully and considerably. And, uh, and let us just continue to love you and love our neighbors. Amen.